OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Welcome to the Supporters Fund Ask an Investor. I'm your host, Jeffrey Potvin. Let's please welcome Rashad Usmani, health tech investor, as our investor for today. Welcome, Rashad. It's a pleasure having you join us today. It's great to be here, Jeffrey. Well, I'm pretty excited, Rashad, because not only were we having a little conversation prior to, to jumping into this, but what I what I love about the health tech space is that it's like every space, anybody can jump in and make magic happen. And it's just how hard you work and everything you can do from a startup entrepreneurial side. But when it comes to health tech, there's 8 million security, governance, roadblocks, eight people, million people that don't want to hear what you have to say because they don't want you to affect their world. So I'm excited to kind of dive in and learn a bit more about how you see this world. And of course, now that you're an investor, how much you're able to change inside this world that you operate in every day. So the way we like to start off our talks is we want to to hear a lot about you. So maybe you can share a bit about your background, you know, from your schooling all the way to your entrepreneurship days. you know, dive right in. And then, of course, one thing about you that nobody would know. Yeah, no, happy to. The one thing I would add to that is after you get through all the regulation and compliance, then you have to deal with physicians and patients and payers and at times politicians. And each one of us has different wants and needs. I'll start after medical school. I graduated medical school in 2012. I went to a Caribbean medical school. I did my undergrad in, in University of Toronto. Um, you know, didn't take undergrad seriously. I think my GPA in second year was in the twos and then kind of brought it up to in the threes uh, by the time I was done, but not enough, not good enough for medical school in Canada by any means. So I did med schooling in the Caribbean, still wasn't really interested in being a physician, which is a funny thing to say, being in medical school, but it was more I didn't know what else to do. And, and partly um, my background is Indian. So there's some societal parental expectations there as well. Um, so as you know, I, I kind of make sense looking back at this, but I did not match into residency after medical school. It took me three years. And within those three years was a very transformative period where I learned lots of life lessons. And it humbled me to an extent. I learned the power of cold calling, which is something I tell every founder. If you are not cold calling, it's, it's, you're playing life on hard mode. So after medical school, I joined um, St. Luke's Roosevelt, which is a hospital with the Columbia University in New York. I did cardiology research there for one year and learned, you know, it was more a stepping stone to get into residency, which didn't pan out, but got published in some good journals and learned more about clinical research um, in that field. As I was returning back to the States, my visa got denied because I did not have strong ties to Canada. My folks were in New York as well. So I was stuck in Canada. I couch surfed for about a few months. You know, I sleep on a friend's couch and I could tell their partner was getting sick of me. And I was like, okay, I'll go to a different friend's couch. Um, and called essentially all the medical schools in Ontario what I knew is I had to stay clinically relevant, as so to call it, or stay in clinic in some capacity. Thankfully, Western gave me a chance and I did observerships there, which is essentially follow physicians around. A lot of people or high school students do it. Um, but it was a way for me to get in. 
eventually one of the exams I wrote, I did really well on, and that landed me a residency at UBC, um, who initially rejected me. And uh, I've learned to respond to every rejection. And just a simple thing saying, you know, um, thank you for considering my application. And I think I'd be a great culture fit and would love to have the opportunity to work with you or, or it doesn't have to be anything great. Um, eventually they invited me for an interview. My first time in BC was for my interview for residency at UBC. I matched there. I did family medicine residency, graduated in 2017, and kind of fluttered about thinking what kind of physician I want to be and did different settings like clinic, hospital, nursing home. Eventually landed on hospitalist. So I was taking care of patients um, in the hospital, took care of the very first COVID patients in Canada as well uh, out in BC, um, but found my life monotonous to an extent. Medicine is a field where you, you, you struggle a lot, long hours, lots of work, but when you get there, there's little growth after. So it's not a field that really incentivizes people to stay, people, especially people who are looking for growth um, continuously. So I thought, okay, what can I do to give me this feeling of growth? Um, and we can talk about success and happiness and achievements and how they're different things. And before I would equate them, but now I, I have a different understanding of the concepts. Um, so I, I thought, okay, startups look interesting. I had no idea what a startup was. Um, you know, I did not know what a safe note was. I did not know what an MVP was. Essentially, no business knowledge. But I thought I would, there are things in, we do in medicine that are algorithmic that I can automate here. So I started clinic up with the intent of automating travel medicine consults because you don't need a physical exam for them. It's just a history. And then based on the history, you recommend treatment. Um, COVID happened, so that didn't pan out. Pivoted to mental health and general medicine. But now I was in a, industry where I'm a service provider with low barrier to entry. And essentially I'm a, I'm a loss leader, which is the way to compete is just reduce your prices. Um, if you keep doing that, especially as a startup, unless you have significant funding, it's not a good way to achieve product market fit or adoption or success in startup. Um, so realize that, and again, being a new, leader in a startup. I had no idea what I was doing. So I was kind of learning the ropes as I go, made tons of mistakes. Didn't pan out, closed clinic up last year, but wanted to stay involved in this, um, in the startup ecosystem, in the innovation ecosystem. Um, and I also got married and had two kids in this, in this time span, um, which we can talk about how to, how to balance life and, and work uh, as well. So I joined, a friend of mine connected to Halo, to Halo Health, which is a physician angel group, um, joined there and I sit on the board there. So a market of uh, Halo Health for more international or more for Canada and US, and a, a, a focus on teaching physicians how to invest, launched health tech investors. It grew to about 500 physicians in a couple of weeks. Um, and we angel invest in startups. We had our first pledge competition, closing in our, on our first two investments right now. Um, and then have a podcast and newsletter as well. So kind of at a crossroads, I think I'm finishing on my fifth angel investment and the plan is to continue investing in five to 10 startups maybe. Uh, average check size around 50 to 100K as a group um, for the next five years. And I think as with most people in my shoes, debating whether to raise a fund in some capacity, would that be the better way to go about this or not? Um, I'll pause there, Jeffrey.
Rashad, that's a, a, a great story. I'm going to ask you to say one thing about you that no one would know. Now, you did share a lot, so there is uh, probably a few things in there, but uh, one great nugget. Um, I'll, say, I'll say a couple things which are personal. One is I paint now. Um, I do paintings on abstract art. Growing up, I was always told I'm not creative. I was always told I'm analytical. So I think we have the tendency to put ourselves in these boxes, you know, introvert, extrovert, visionary operator, but life is circumstantial. Our experiences are based on our environment. So I, I, I would say um, the, the Rashad you see now in a lot of ways is, is very different than the Rashad of the past. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but I, I would kind of just encourage people listening to not be stuck to these boxes because you don't have to. You know, you can be an introvert and an extrovert. You can be a visionary and an operator. That's brilliant and and well shared. It, it's uh, it reminds me a couple of weeks ago I did a talk uh, to a, uh, at a school and there was about forty Indian students. And when I like to start opening up the conversation, I have everybody introduce themselves, their name, and one thing about them they don't know, which is similar. And I couldn't believe how many people in that class were artists, designers, musicians. It was incredible. Every student was, I love singing or I am in dance or uh, I'm an actress. And I was like, this is incredible. So the, I think there is so much diversity that to your point that we block because we're told one thing and we think, oh, we should stick with this. And I know they've proven a million times that if you tell someone they're smart, give them an A, all of a sudden they become smart. It's that confidence layer that gets layered into that is being blocked because of other people's beliefs or whatever the reasons are. So to your point, you know, don't let anybody hold you back. Don't let yourself hold yourself back. If you've got something you believe in and you're, you you uh, want to try it, don't hold back, get into it, try it out. Yeah, I think uh, a bias to action um, and experience is the best teacher. Agreed. Okay, awesome. Well, we're going to go back to a, a couple of things that you shared and peel back on these. And, and one of them that... Um, I liked because you said it right from the get-go, and this really defines pretty much any job you're gonna have when you first come out of school, and that is the cold calling, the sales side, and just learning and understanding where I fit in this space, what I'm good at, what I don't like. And you went to saying right away that uh, you had to do the cold calling, and I'm sure that was like deer in headlights, and you're like, I can't believe I have to cold call. But there is this level of excitement that when you are doing cold calling, especially when you get somebody on the call, it feels like this little victory. And then it's really how do you work through it? And I'm sure the first cold call that someone answered to the 10th one, you had totally changed every single script and things that you were talking to and learned a lot from it. Is there a couple of things that you can kind of share a little bit more on that? Because I think from a founder perspective, I think we lack that ability to test our limits and try something different. And this makes a big difference. And it shows obviously in all the things that you did uh, to get where we are today. I think what a lot of people surprisingly don't do in cold calling is introduce themselves. Um, so say who you are, and then you can say what you're calling depending on the circumstances. Um, but you can just say who you are and try and learn a bit more about the person you're talking to. Um, Sales is a is a people job, and I think people buy, um, people buy excitement and what solves their problem. They don't buy your product features. 
So the classic mistake is people, you know, jumping into this, my, I have this, this, I'm selling this product and this is amazing and it's best, it's the best product in the market and it's the cheapest product in the market and it does these five things. Um, you know, people don't care <laughs> about your product. People care about themselves. So I think keep the focus on the person. And this is something I did with UBC in my interview. And uh, I don't know if they're listening now, but I think it's too late now because <laughs> I've graduated. Um, is, is the focus is on, you know, I want to be a family physician. That's my purpose in life. You want to create family physicians. You want to select people who want to be family physicians, and that's me. Um, so I think a sales, sales 101 tactic is keep the focus on the customer. Um, and there is, there's tension here when it comes to healthcare. Because as patients, what I want is to feel comfortable, um, to be happy. And sometimes I prefer a short-term reward at the risk of long-term uh, punishment. Um, we see this with antibiotics, viral illnesses, opioids, stimulants. And we see a lot of startups kind of really stick to this customer obsession. Um, we can get into the tension there if you want, but it's something to be wary of when you're building in healthcare. And when you were talking about what you were going through, you, you're, one, I love how open you are to it. The calmness of just being able to free talk, obviously your journey, which is exciting, um, fails, wins, all of the above. And then when you started to talk about, you know, diving in as an analyst and, and doing research, and you're learning throughout this process, and of course, cold calling and tying all these elements of sales into it. But just the fact of how you went to school and, and how you decided, well, I wasn't sure, then I had to up my grades a bit more to get into X. It was almost like everything was a trial and error. And you were going to land somewhere. You didn't have a direct, I'm going to be, as you mentioned, a physician. I'm yeah. probably going to be somewhere in this field. I'll see where it, lets, it gets me to. But there was this thought process of trial and error. And this is your journey sounds so much like a startup. And today your startup has now filled its um, quota of where it wants to be. And today you're working as an investment. But throughout that process, you were going through the trials and errors of trying to figure out what your startup was going to look like. Or at least that's how my head is registering your story. Um, and now you're at a spot where you're in a, a great area. You're building a network. You're building a community. So when you go back and look at what you went through at that onset of trial and error to get through school and then figuring out I tried here and I still had a way of responding back and making sure that um, the school was, you know, hey, you didn't accept me, but I'll respond back anyways and say thank you for your time because I don't want to burn that bridge. I might be back. So it sounds like this journey of of trial and error was actually very fruitful in educating you on how to help others today. So if you go back to that early onset, was there a driving factor? Was it uh, I need to end up somewhere, I have to get into school, or my parents are going to think of the less. What was the driving force behind all of this? Because again, then you threw out, oh, I had two kids and I got married all in this little short period of time. So it, it's such a, an amazing journey, but it started somewhere. What was the driving force behind all of these little pieces that kind of all tied together? You know, I'll, I'll give you the, the selfish personal answer, and then I'll give you my, my, my macro view of the world, which kind of drives me. Um, to do things. So I, I was in debt, 350,000 student loans. Uh, so I needed a way to repay that. And the only way I saw is to be a physician um, because every other job I kind of listed down didn't make an, enough income. 
Um, so I had this fear as a driving factor, which I was kind of running away from uh, this debt I had and to be able to pay that back. What I was running towards to an extent, and this is something I'm changing my mindset on to an extent, you could say the happy person is a person who has enough, or you can say the happy person is a person who is continuously growing. My default intuition is the latter, is the person who is continuously growing. And it's a wrong default to have. Uh, a, a much better place is be happy and accepting you have enough. Um, but you know, some, some things we can keep trying to change, but it is our default intuition regardless. Um, so I constantly seek growth and I'm very easy to get, I, I get bored very easily. Um, so that, that was essentially what I was trying to do is seek new challenges. And when I pick what I want to do, I default to the hardest thing. Because uh, in my head, and, and this is somewhat insecurity um, from a child, uh, you know, I was overweight and I still am to an extent, um, bullied to an extent as well. So a lot of insecurity when I was a child, I used to exaggerate and lie. Um, but that insecurity still drives me to keep growing and to keep doing more. Now I am driven towards seeking the truth or really trying to figure out how the world operates what incentives exist in this world, how people make decisions, how companies make decisions, how startups grow. And the problem of this startup is a very difficult problem to solve. There's so many variables. And to me, that's just, that's just exciting. Um, I think it's fun. Um, I enjoyed my startup. I, I don't know if you hear a lot of founders say that, but it's, it's, again, it comes from looking at the world and universe as a, as a puzzle to be solved. Um, or a very complex equation or a very complex patient that presents to my hospital and I have to take care of them. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm still trying to kind of peel back the layers and figure out now, um, I think I have somewhat of an idea how to build an unsuccessful startup. Um, so maybe, you know, building on that, a successful startups is just correcting all the errors I've recognized. Um, and in this building, this community, I'm trying to take those lessons. And one of the lessons being when you hire someone, hire for loyalty, commitment, don't hire the rock star. Um, Adam Grant talks about this in his book, Originals. As, as your startup grows and it gets into the growth space, then the rock stars matter more. And looking, putting my investor hat, pre-seed stage, all about the founder. Um, the best founder will find the right market, the right team, the right idea. But it's about the founder. Series A and beyond, it's market. You know, it, it's, are you in the right market? Are you on your path or do you have product market fit? Um, and the study from Idealab um, about what is the most important uh, predictor of startup success, market timing. It's completely different from the public markets. I don't want people to conflate the two because, uh, you know, I see a lot of people who come from real estate or public markets and they want to invest in startups. And essentially you have to look at real estate public markets and then private markets. And even within private markets, private equity and venture capital early stage as different things. Um, there's, not, there's not many parallels you can draw there. I totally agree with that. And, and I like the fact that you're, you know, the comment you meant about uh, building for loyalty and, and it really comes down to that founder focus and how well they can pivot and the knowledge that they contain and how they kind of move their business forward. When you're, Earlier on, you talked about culture fit and 
culture fit is kind of fits into that same thing on the loyalty side. And we were talking about this prior is that, you know, how well the team responds to the founder and then how that carries through. And that all comes back down to culture again. And because the world's been shifting so much, you know, as you alluded with COVID and all the changes, how do you see that culture fit changing? And, and in hospitals, maybe they didn't change as much because everybody still had to go to work at a hospital. You couldn't stay from home and work from home. And uh, maybe in 10, 20 years, you'd be able to do a surgery from your home. But uh, I think it's pretty practical that that environment didn't change. Maybe it lessened by the amount of volume of people going in and out, but it was still active. Uh, have you seen and do you feel that there is a cultural shift change in that environment or the way startups are approaching uh, healthcare today than they were maybe five years ago? Um, I think culture is, uh, is an end product of following your priorities and recognizing your priorities. And I think when you're trying to out, lay out your priorities, look in the past, look in the immediate past. How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? Um, what pisses you off the most? What makes you the happiest? And look at it from an objective standpoint. I think there is a change in culture and remote work. And that change, I, you know, and it's hard for me to say this because I love remote work, uh, is it, not aligned with startups. Um, it's very difficult to build a startup remotely, especially in healthcare. Now, once you're post-product market fit, sure, I think there's there's more room for that. But early on, you know, radical honesty, building uh, a committed, loyal team is is very important. Uh, not that you cannot do it remotely, but if you do do it remotely, you have to be very um, you have to be very structured about it and very diligent about it. Um, the one thing I did is I, I record all my meetings and then everyone can watch them. Um, this is following Ray Dalio's principle. He's famously radically honest uh, with kindness. Uh, just because you're honest doesn't give you the, the um, you, you cannot be rude or unkind uh, in the name of honesty. Um, yeah, I think when people talk about culture, Often things, you know, they'll say they conflate company culture to social culture, and they're they're different things. Um, so gay rights, abortion, those are, those are social culture things. You can have people who defer in those things um, and still have a very loyal, committed company, as long as everyone follows radical honesty with kindness. Um, so I, I think uh, there's something to be said there, but you know, there's a reason companies are moving back to work in office. Now, I don't think a big scaling company who's already established needs to do that uh, to an extent. Again, maybe this is something I'm talking about, things I don't know, because I operate in the very early stage. But I, I think a startup, it, it's very difficult to build that remotely. Um, it's not impossible, but it's difficult, yeah. Agreed, it's a little harder to get new people that are all new to each other working remotely to figure out people's good, bad, and quirks and things like that that help motivate and drive people if you never actually shook their hand or uh, got to see them on a regular basis and could figure out how to solve problems quickly, they end up becoming longer drawn-out problems. So I, I would assume there's many other reasons for it, um, but it certainly would be uh, seems a lot more difficult to try and do everything remotely when 
you know, you have accelerators and incubators that are there purposely done so that you're not only mixed in with your own team, but you're mixed in with other like-minded entrepreneurs that are doing the same thing. So you're all kind of working to invigorate each other in that high energy room. And if you're lacking that room, then maybe that makes things run longer and burn more time and effort. Yeah, no, I say that, but my investment um, angel syndicate is, is mostly remote. And that's because we have investors from all over the the world. Um, we have a couple in UK and then Canada and US. Um, but you say something there that uh, I think we can go deeper on if you'd like is identifying the laggards. That is so important in the startup. You can have people who are coasting along and for a big company, it's fine. You know, have a few of your employees coasting along, you know, um, you're providing people with housing purpose work. It's great. I think you can look at it from that perspective. But for a startup, it could be the death of a startup if you have laggards early on uh, because they have equity. And what founders don't realize is equity is very precious. Um, and you kind of know this when you go further along and you're trying to hire an external CTO or CEO and they come on and they say, okay, why does this person have 20% equity? What have they done? Um, and it becomes very evident that you were frivolous with equity. Um, so I think I would, I would like founders to keep that in mind. Um, and as an investor, I have to identify laggards early on as well. There's a mistake investors make, and I've made so in the past as well, where the companies that you pay the most attention to or need your help the most, you want to think they will succeed because you want to believe that you are helping startups succeed. And depending on what kind of investor you are, you can say your job is, to really focus on picking the best founders, not making the best founders, um, which again, you know, if, if a company is lagging behind, you can do what you can to help. But at some point you just have to kind of recognize, okay, I'm not gonna get my money back here um, and focus on the, on the, so to say, winners and same with founders. Um, yeah. It almost goes back to the 10%. You'll focus on the 10% and the rest of the 90% you just let go because you can only do so much and that 10% is the winners or the value that you know are gonna grow and uh, move its way forward. But you end up spending all your time with the 90% because they're the ones that are having the most problems. So they're hammering you while you're trying to focus on the ones that you deem as being successful. So uh, I, I do see there's um, there is certainly a uh, a crisis because you do hope that everybody can understand the value that they have, what the exchanges, uh, what the equity value looks like in a business, but also that they have their hand on the pulse. Um, and, and, you know, one thing I'll, I'll share that I always look for in a founder is that I want them to be, and I used to say they were psychotic, but people told me I couldn't use that word anymore because it didn't work very well. So I will now share that it's the fifth gear, you know, the, um, the LeBron James fifth gear or the, um, uh, just anybody that just really can change the game in a second, just by, you know, Wayne Gretzky, whoever you want to look at, they just have that ability to change the game by just turning it up a notch. And then all of a sudden the game has changed uh, hands and now you're moving in the right direction. And, you know, that's the type of founder you're looking for and how do you find them? You know, and if I go back to the startup that you created, I think this is sides well with it, its experience. 
Um, and I listened to some of the other podcasts where you chatted about, and, and it says that, you know, does it matter if they're a first time founder or does it matter if they're a second, third time founder? Uh, can they navigate things better? Can they be better because of that? And I think a lot of that experience comes down to is how do you maneuver and how fast can you maneuver? But also, when do you see the writing on the wall and decide I either pivot or close down and move on? And, you know, taking your experience that you created with your business, you said you loved it, which is phenomenal. That's passion is kind of the number one key rule that everybody looks for. So if you take kind of what you went through and all the learning you had prior and then during your startup, do you feel that you're, you enabled yourself with the right knowledge and understanding of the environment to put your best foot forward into that startup? And then when you decided that's it, I'm done, um, the outcome of that experience, do you think that that would create your next business to be 10 times better than that one, first one? Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and sometimes as an investor, you're paying for the founder's education. Uh, but there is some truth to investing in founders so you can invest in their second startup because you know this founder will create a unicorn at some point in their life. Um, the reason I don't invest in part-time founders is, is because of my startup experience. I was still full-time in clinical medicine and I was doing my startup. So I had two full-time jobs essentially. Um, and it's just, you can only do that for so long. I think, especially with a family, um, I think a year or two and then you're, you're kind of done. So I was very burnt out in my startup and which is why, and I guess it's a privilege to be able to work on your startup full-time but I think it's almost a necessity given the amount of bandwidth, um, time and energy it takes um, to go from zero to one or zero to product market fit. Agreed. So now taking all the clinical work and all of the understanding you have of this space and of course startups and what you went through, are there any key takeaways that you would share with founders in the health tech space um, that would help them better understand what they're getting into if it's their first time. Obviously, if they're a second or third time founder, they'll have an understanding of the health tech space or med space. Is there something you would share that would say, you know, here's three things you can't do because it's not going to work. And here's three things that are positively ways that'll help you kind of get around and, and bend some of the corners to succeed. Yeah, I think it, it, the advice will vary depending on if they're biotech, medical device, or digital health or pharma. Um, I will say understand the market landscape uh, just because you're solving a big problem that patients or physicians have does not mean there's a market for it. In healthcare, there's a difference between the payer and the user. And this is similar to enterprise software, but the difference is, is much wider. And there are two different entities. Usually when enterprise software start founders um, say, I want to be in a parallel market like healthcare or an adjacent market. Um, they bring the same sales techniques to an extent, and it's just not the same because as a physician, I have the Ministry of Health in Canada anyways pays me, uh, but they essentially have no operational oversight. And I have no operational oversight over them. Like we have no idea what's going on with each other, uh, apart from those funds being transferred. Um, so I, I think uh, understand that. And understand what is the marker or metric of success for um, your for the payer, uh, because essentially at the end of the day, that's who you're selling to. Um, if you're in the B two C market, then understand 
if you need physicians or clinicians um, in your pathway. Uh, I see founders kind of treat physicians as an afterthought in the sense that, you know, this is what's good for the patient. Um, yeah, physicians will prescribe it. Um, in some ways, in Canada anyways, a lot of physicians were running businesses and how businesses make decisions is uh, increased revenue, decreased expenditure. And specifically, if you're talking about bigger corporations, increased revenue, decreased expenditure in three months. So because finances work in a quarterly um, cadence, your startup has to show benefit within three months, essentially. So understand that. I, I get a lot of founders with amazing products. You know, this will save patients' lives. This will improve healthcare. No one's willing to pay for it. Um, you have to understand your market. And you have to understand the pain points of people who are paying for it, not the people who are using it, because those are two very different things in healthcare. Um, and, and we see this, you know, with health systems buying EMRs and things that make our lives as physicians uh, tangibly worse, but they increase billings for the health system and reduce liability for the health system. Um, and those founders that figure that out, you know, this is what my, my the person who's buying my product this is their pain point. Um, if success for your acquirer, and this is true in medical device, is if physicians will use it, um, especially if they're targeting specialist physicians, there's a lot more leverage. A neurosurgeon has a lot more leverage over a hospital than I do um, because the hospital is often reliant on that neurosurgeon to operate um, certain surgeries or, or it's, it's a bulk of their revenue in, in some cases. Um, so if you're de developing a medical device, that a neurosurgeon will use, well, you need to know, will they use it? Oh. Then the focus needs to be on that. So identify what is success for your buyer or for your acquirer. Um, so, you know, for Bayer, Abbott, Johnson Johnson, Boston, like all these companies, success maybe, uh, and I'm not gonna give you the answer here because um, <laughs> I think the founders need to do some homework. Uh, and, it, and, and it will be variable depending on who you're talking to. Uh, will physicians use this? And what is the standard of care? What is the cost to maintain and replace the standard of care um, for the health system or the physician? And then how much better is this? Generally, you want 10x better. Uh, and 10x better could be defined as cheaper or faster. Those are the two e easiest things to define it as. But I'll, I'll pause there, Jeffrey, because I could keep talking forever. No, this is great. And, and I think the way you kind of the way I'm understanding this and to take a, um, a step back and kind of wrangle through this for everyone is that what you're saying is that just like basketball and everything else, media and entertainment is about making money. It's revenue. It's not about the team. It's not about the players. It's not about the great game they put on tonight. It's about how much money did all of that make and how does that make enough money to pay everybody after? And if you're going to just throw this new product in that's going to save lives, it has to make money. It has to generate revenue. And you have to change a process. There is a process that's been in place that when uh, a practitioner goes in for surgery or whatever it might be, they follow this 20-step process, grab this, tools here, setup is here, this is how this is all done. And if you think you're going to come in and wipe that all out and change it all around because you've you know built in a new uh talcum powder when 
they never use talcum powder, you really better be able to make sure that you can prove that this is going to bring value, but increase revenues and increase value for the overall objective, just like in the sporting event everything comes down to the dollar that's made. And I think maybe sometimes we focus too much on the solution and not enough on who the solution is actually being sold to. So you're correct in saying that this might be the best solution in the world and it could save millions of lives. But if someone can't pay for it, that will never see the light of time, uh, light of day. And that's a process that is um, a pain point that's not being resolved because you looked at it from how can I save lives versus how do I make money and make this product fit into your product stream or your KPIs? Uh, so that process didn't change. Uh, so I, I do think that that is uh, pretty crucial. I don't, maybe people don't always think of it that way when they're first building this product. And I think that would make a big difference uh, on how you can slot into this process in the future. Yeah, no, that's well said. And you, you can do both. But unlike enterprise or where you're selling to um, the CRO or whoever in the company, health systems do not have decision-making capacity over physicians because we accept liability for our decisions. So even though you might sell to health system, if we refuse to use or prescribe or the product, then that is a loss for the health system often. So you know it's, this is why healthcare is so hard uh, because while you have to have profits and you have to focus on revenue um, increases and reducing expenditure. You also have to make sure physicians will use the product and you also have to make sure patients will like it um, and minimize lawsuits and, and things like those. Um, so there's a lot of different layers in healthcare. And I think you know most people in healthcare will happily talk about that, but founders need to understand that and not just focus on, okay, this is a pain point for physicians. I'm gonna solve this pain point. Well, who will pay for it? Uh, and, and how does that, what are the downstream effects of what you're doing? And the downstream effects in healthcare can, can last decades, as we see with opioids. Um, it's a classic answer to being customer obsessed and really focus on a pain point of one single individual, which is the patient. You know, if you're in a lot of pain, you want to be not in pain. Um, so if someone gives you something to be not in pain, you might take it without understanding the long-term effects of it. Um, which is essentially how the opioid epidemic started. Uh, and then coupled with marketing tactics like pain being the, um, the fifth vital sign, <laughs> which essentially means, you know, the goal is to be pain-free, which is not the goal in pain treatment. Uh, because if, if you've been in an accident, if you have arthritis, you will be in pain. Um, we don't have the answer to remove your pain. We have the answer to reduce it. We have the answer to maybe shift mindset and focusing on uh, activity and what you're doing instead of focusing on the pain. But this is, it's not an easy shift. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, but any physician would have told you that. So I think and th there's, you have to look at it as a whole. Um, but you know, like when it comes down to it, these are somewhat moral and ethical obligations or challenges. Uh, Purdue still made a lot of money from opioids even after they paid everyone out. So I think you have to kind of um, personally decide where you land uh, on this issue. Uh, I, I think most of us will land on, we don't want to cause another opioid epidemic, uh, even if we make some money. I hope so anyways. <laughs> I, I hope so on that part too. It, but it, it's interesting that 
you know, the world says that the healthcare system is broken out. You could say education's broken, everything's broken. There's nothing that actually works like it's supposed to. And, and I and I agree and disagree that that is a way of looking at things. I think everything is broken to everybody's eye, like eye of the beholder. They can choose what they think needs to be corrected. Uh, from governments to healthcare, you name it, everything has a piece that can be modified. But what they've done is that they've uh, they've built a home or they've built a wall. And what they've done is they've layered that wall to be structured so that it becomes more secure each time. Maybe it was very thin the first time. And every time a, a new government or a new body comes in, they strengthen that wall. And that's just done through process, understanding, revenues. And they, you know, every year it gets bigger and better, but it has very minimal change that you can see as the uh, observer from the outside. So we always think it's broken, but it's also self-perpetuating, but it's also self-protecting. So just like the healthcare industry, when they're getting uh, insurance, you know, they can't just go and throw in 8 million new tools this year and say, hey, this is all great. We'll be able to do X and Y, but there's no pre-studies. Same thing in cars and planes. They just can't make these big overhauling changes that we all think are gonna happen. The industry has been built over centuries and decades and each time that wall gets a bit thicker and more sturdy, but it's not at the pace everybody wants. And that's because the fear is that if I make the wrong, that wall will break or that wall will crack or fall apart. So is there, you know, you mentioned a bunch of ways of making this um, by focusing on the revenue side. Is there any last advice that you can share that would say, you know, it's going to be a tough battle. Give yourself at least six years because it's going to be six years to crack into this. And, you know, while you're doing that, make sure that you've got the best coach and mentor, find a practitioner that is, you know, an MD of a hospital so they can back you because you need that type of strength behind you, because it's going to take a while for this to break into the market. Is there kind of some things or thoughts that you might have that will help enable a startup or even an investor to look for uh, in this type of program? Because again, it's, this is a long haul. This is not a short investment cycle when it comes to investing in meds or pharma or, uh, uh, health tech space. I'll say, I'll kind of caveat this by saying from a financial perspective, this is the best time to be investing. A down market is, you know, the last down markets are Uber and Slack and Salesforce and, and tons of unicorns that we're used to and that are household names to an extent. So from an investor perspective, you know, it's amazing. Valuations are low. It's, it's a great time to be investing. From a founder perspective, one of the hardest things to do is follow the mantra, uh, loose ideas strongly held, or strong ideas loosely held, which is have conviction in your idea, but also have the humility to pivot and when things aren't going well and identify metrics which matter, um, which are maybe not revenue-based early on because you, you want your searching product market fit. You're not chasing short-term revenue. Identify the 10% of your customers uh, and focus on those identify the path that leads to your vision and then have your vision be valuable. Um, a few tailwinds, and I'll kind of share this for founders that I'm investing on. I know a lot of other investors are investing on um, is a digital front door hybrid home care model. The concept of hospitals doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Why congregate all of our sake into one this building and tell them to go away from society? You know, provide care for people where they're comfortable, where they're happy, which is home. Um, expansion of digital care, I think, is, is a must. People don't want to travel when they're sick. I think it's a simple concept. So bring care to them. So things that do that, I think, will be um, looked upon favorably. Mental health has been a massive focus. In some ways, life is as difficult right now for a lot of people. 
um, with inflation and with cost of living. So I think there will be some change in the definition of mental health, but products which improve mental well-being, you know, will always be looked favorably upon, especially in the employer space with disability being a, a bigger and bigger burden to an extent. Um, mental health and reducing disability, I think that's that's a good tailwind. There's a lot of advancements in biotech and personalized medicine. We've come a long way for personalized medicine for cancer care, but really haven't for diabetes, heart disease. Um, so I think there's there's something there. And AI for clinical trials is another one I'll kind of push out. If you're building in software, the value of software is low. The value of data is very high, especially proprietary data, exclusive data, and good data. Um, I think the future physician notes will be videos. And I'll kind of caveat this by saying, if you watch a if you watch the transcript of a basketball game, you know, and then say, ask yourself, do I know what happened? Yeah, you know what happened on paper, but you don't really know what the energy was like. You don't know what the emotions were like. Um, but we seem to think for a clinical encounter, we can just read the transcript and know what happened. For a surgery, we can. Um, the counter there is, well, you cannot. So the, having text-based records makes no sense to me. Now imagine if you never watched a basketball game and all you saw was the text, which is the reality for a lot of people re reading these surgical notes or clinical notes and then trying to make products to make it better. And you know, go go observe a surgery, go observe a patient encounter of someone who let you a friend maybe uh, from the physician's perspective. You know, um, our decisions are are visual visual and audio; they're not based on charting. And oftentimes we'll chart not for hours after our encounter. So the, the gap between what actually happened and what our clinical decision-making process is and what's reflected on text in the chart, it's a very wide gap. So like to me, it's not surprising that we haven't replaced clinical decision-making with AI because we don't have the data and we will never have the data until we have audiovisual recordings. Text will never capture the data. And you can have these AI scribes, but even you know they're they're not capturing um, the physical exam or the, how the patient looks. There's a lot more visual cues in in that process that uh, they're lacking because they're not being described as you mentioned. Yeah, I love it. No, that's uh, that's a great share, and and I do agree with obviously, of course, with all of that. But I do like that you're being forward thinking and saying that you know this space is going to grow. It's going to change, and these are the areas that would look the best um, to change, and that is being practical. If we're already used to working from a home, why wouldn't you want to uh, help somebody in their own home? Why wouldn't you focus on uh, doing door-to-door -door calls and, and taking care of people, finding ways that you can build mental health that doesn't affect an employer because you're taking care of them at home, and you're doing things that are non-intrusive to the rest of the environment they're in, and seeing if there's a way to build on that. I, I think that's very well shared. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it, it, it's exciting. Like, I'm really looking forward to what's happening in healthcare um, and the advancements on the horizon. And I think founders, you know, know that it's a long road, know that you need to understand the different processes and it's not just, I'm going to fix this one pain point um, because we had, there's a lot of downstream effects in healthcare and there's a lot of players behind the scene, um, but it, it's exciting. And I think it, it's been, investments have been down recently, but uh, I think it will pick up before the end of the year. Agreed, love it. Okay, we're going to transition now into um, a, a couple of uh, different spots. 
the first one, I've got a couple of questions and then we're going to dive into our 60 second rant. So the, the question, first question I have is, what is the toughest lesson so far that you've learned as an investor? Deal heat is what I would say for that, um, which is when the more time you invest in a startup, in a founder, the more time you invest in researching them, doing diligence, the more you want to invest in them. Um, so have a structured process for diligence. And if you see red flags that you have identified that you are um, you are saying, and I want to invest if this happens, then follow that. You know, in, in a game of finding exceptionalities, striving for commonalities, maybe an exercise in futility to an extent, but you can still find patterns that you can hang your hat on. Perfect. Is there a case study or a story that comes to mind that you can share to the audience on what you believe it takes to be an entrepreneur or to be a startup founder or a, a company that you've been working with and what they've gone through to kind of show you what that um, real environment is like and the outcome that can occur, good or bad? Yeah, I'll, I'll um, you know, I'll shout out Steve Charla from SoPet Health. Um, he's a physician, MBA came out of retirement um, to start his startup. So you can already know there's a lot of passion behind that. He lost his, his brother um, for a medical misdiagnosis and that's what drives him. Um, he's a formidable founder. When you ask him for something or you ask him a question, you have the answer right away. When he tells you this is what's happening, this is what's going to happen, it always happens. Um, including big contracts he's signing, and they recently signed a fairly big one, um, which I think they've announced last month. Uh, so, you know, he is someone who doesn't have to do his startup. He, he's post-financial freedom. He's in retirement. Um, he is someone you can say he is motivated. He will move the earth to do this. And I think sometimes you need that, um, especially in healthcare. Um, but he also has the humility to recognize the market conditions, um, to say, you know, software, NLP is out the gate and things are changing fast and he needs to iterate fast to kind of keep on top of things. You know, there, there's one thing to say about manifesting things or saying, this is what I'm going to do, but you still have to do the work. <laughs> you still have to iterate. You still have to recognize, um, you know, where things are going wrong. Keep a close eye on your startup. Um, keep a close eye on your people. He has, I believe, 12 engineers and most of them are equity-based. Um, so you think he's a, he's running a very lean machine um, and he, he's doing an amazing job. Love it. Great story. Okay, we're going to dive into the 60-second rant. So I'm going to start my clock. You have 60 seconds to rant about anything that you are passionate about, that you feel the world needs to hear. And then I'll throw a rebuttal or at least a comment. Hopefully I can. And then uh, you'll close it off from there. Ready to roll? Yeah. yeah. All right. You're on. Okay. I'll comment on two things. The first thing is design your life with purpose. There are two ways to design your work life. One way is you work 40-hour weeks. You have weekends and evenings off. And you have a more balanced life. The second way is you do sprints. So you work for six months. You work for a year and you work 100 hour weeks, you completely devote yourself to work. And then you take six months off. I think it's important to introspect, to reflect, to start every day with 10 minutes, 20 minutes of meditation. And we don't get this enough. So many of us wake 
um, by our phone. And then the first thing we do is check our email. I would encourage you to not do that, to just sit with your thoughts. The inability to, to sit in silence is where a lot of your suffering comes from, I will say. Um, and this is, a, this is a known quote, a known thing in Buddhism as well to an extent. Um, so being able to just recognize who you are and look at yourself objectively is, is so critical. And if everyone did that, I, I think um, that, would be, that would be amazing. The second thing I would say is if physicians and clinicians were involved in innovation in healthcare 30 years from now, healthcare would be much better. And this is the why behind health tech investors is having physicians, clinicians, nurses, pharmacists, and patients involved in developing the new technology, the new EMRs, the new telehealth systems is, is critical. I, I think you cannot, if, you, if we're doing a disservice, if we don't do that, because healthcare will be much worse off, both in terms of equity of access and quality. The best way to be involved is to start a company or to fund it. Um, and funding a company is the easier path of the two, so I am in some ways taking the easier path. I think innovation drives economies. And if we want Canada, US, or wherever you are to be at the forefront in the future, you have to focus on the startup ecosystem. This is my gripe with Canada, especially Canadian healthcare. There is no ecosystem for Canadian startups. So you, you hear a lot about all these accelerators and biotech is one that's doing well because a company doesn't need to show revenue. It doesn't need to commercialize before an exit. But everything else, if you need to commercialize, there is no commercial market. The hospitals from my conversations, you have no idea what a startup is. Um, they're looking for integration with EMRs, which you know, there's no startup without a federal mandate that has a budget for that. Um, so, you know, the government here, if it values innovation, it needs to show it, right? Mandate interoperability, uh, mandate hospitals, you know, 10% of your revenue must go to startups. You must have a startup pilot program. Um, I think we have the worst of both worlds where we're a government focused system with all the administrative blood that goes along with that. But also we, it's too, um, it's too segregated. It's, it's not structured have a top-down system and you don't need five middle managers allocating funding in, in Ministry of Healthcare. Um, allocate funding directly to frontline workers. And you know, half half her funding is going to waste. Uh, and it doesn't need to, right? As a community that I, I came across is looking for physicians that are trying to incentivize by a telemedicine system. Why do I want a telemedicine system? You know, talk to physicians, learn what we want, and especially with the cost of living, maybe we a recruitment incentive would go further. It's not a maybe, it will go further. Uh, so I, I think, uh, yeah, I'll pause there, Jeffrey. Well, that was well shared. I'm going to say we we broke the uh, 60 second barrier, but that was okay. It was well worth it. Uh, my my quick rebuttal would be, I remember this was about 15 years ago. I was um, Arrington Huffington or Huffington Arrington. Uh, the lady was doing a talk and she said to everybody, you need to take time and break and don't work so hard. Stop working at four o'clock and just breathe. Take a moment. I don't agree with that. So and, I think there's moments in your life where you can work at four a.m. Yeah. And that was that was that's my rebuttal to this is that there's this mindset when you're successful that you need to stop, breathe, and take your time and don't work so hard and, and shut down the system. And I think that was the point she was trying to make. And everybody in the room kind of was like, wait a second. Yeah, you just sold your company for a half billion dollars. So now you can say that, but how much time did you put into actually making this a success? 
And to your earlier point, focus, focus, focus. So how do you really take that moment? And I think you gave one point, which is um, meditation, taking five minutes or 10 minutes in the morning to reflect. And I think we need to figure out is how does that work? And then my last rebuttal to the clinicians and EMRs, 100% there needs to be a system top down, pushes businesses, especially government run businesses to take a time and allocate startup funding or startup uh, test product, test data, test information that is governed by the people that have been through the system that are retired. Bring them back and allow them to manage some form of startup integration so that it doesn't take away from the people that are working in the space today because they're already overburdened and overworked and there's got to be a balance. So how do you do that? And I don't know if that's a solution, but those are my two rebuttals. Yeah, perfect. So I think the, the first one, 10 minutes, five, two minutes. You know, it doesn't have to be 10 minutes. Wake up two minutes and just, just sit there. Don't lay in bed because uh, that doesn't count. You have to sit or stand um, and just just don't do anything for two minutes. Um, at two, everyone has two minutes in the morning. I mean, realistically, everyone has 10 minutes, really. Um, but start with two minutes and just do that every morning. Sam Harris has his meditation app, which I like. Um, and you can use that as well. Um, the second, the only thing I would say is we are seeing this to an extent with this rise of, you know, there's an accelerator every quarter now. Um, there's an incubator every quarter. Um, have success defined as quality, not quantity. Because even though re repetition quantity begets quality, it's not always true. Um, so the quality of the startups matters and you know, have success for them being like, you need one unicorn in the next five years um, and have shorter term goals that lead to that. Because um, what I'm seeing, especially in you know, my area, which is the Kitchener-Waterloo area, there's a lot of quantity, but there's not much quality. Um, that's changing slowly, but you can see where the VC money goes and Canadian VC money goes to, goes to American startups, except biotech, um, because you don't need to commercialize for biotech exits. Agreed. All right, we're almost there. We're going to whip through some uh, uh, business questions and then we'll jump into the personal. Sure. So rapid fire, you, yes or no, which one you like best coming from you as the investor? So first question, founder or co-founder? Founder. Unicorn or a four-year 10X exit? Unicorn. Tech or CPG? Tech. NFTs or Web 3.0? Neither. Yeah. I say neither. Yeah. yeah. AI or blockchain? AI. Uh, first time founder or second, third time founder? Second, third time founder. First money in or Series A? First money in. Angel or VC? Angel. Board seat or observer? Observer. Safe or convertible note? Safe. Uh, lead or follow? Follow. Uh, number of companies invested per year? Five. Verticals of focus? Focus. Uh, sorry, uh, which verticals do you want to focus on? I'm guessing you're going to say med tech or biotech, but somewhere or health tech, which are the areas that you tend to invest in? Yeah, AI and digital health, medical device, and biotech, focusing on personalized medicine, epigenetics. Okay. Two qualities for a startup to stand out? 
speed to iteration, humility, and commitment to the idea, a strong founder problem fit. Love it. What is the piece of advice you give founders nine out of 10 times? Hire for loyalty and commitment. Do you have a philosophy or rules that you stand behind? I think rules are meant to be broken. And I think the universe is malleable and ever-changing. So having strict criteria often works against you. Um, basic things like honesty and transparency, radical honesty with kindness. I think the second line on my side is, we do not value pedigree or legacy. It's not about what you've done. It's about what you're going to do. So if you have lived a very accomplished life, that's great. I'm very happy for you. But it's more about, you know, what are you going to do in the future? Love it. Who is your hero, mentor, and why? So there's another thing I don't believe in, <laughs> is having heroes and mentors, because I think we're all fallible. There are lessons you can learn from everyone. I love the book, uh, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius and Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, um, who the psychiatrist in the concentration camp, and he talks about his experiences there. Um, so I'll name those two books, but I think it's, uh, from my personality, it doesn't work to have mentors or heroes. Fair. If you can change one thing about venture, what would it be? A longer time horizon, a 20-year fund. What line do you find you share to investors over and over? Have a structured diligence process and apply intuition after. Never invest against your intuition, but your initial intuition is often wrong without the structure. This is born from Danny Kahneman's framework of decision-making um, from his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. I like it. Is there any other podcasts or anything else that you would reference for people to check out? 20-Minute uh, VC by Harry Stevings. Um, I think that that's a great one. I have a podcast. Um, we talk about healthcare and life and decision-making. Um, but I'd say 20 Bit VC is probably my favorite VC podcast. And then the usual standards, um, I listen to Joe Rogan, Lex Friedman. Um, Chris Williamson is interesting as well. And it's more about life in general and meaning and purpose. And I think uh, it, it's worthwhile taking time to think about meaning and purpose because oftentimes if you don't, you find yourself at 37, which is as I'm 37. Um, thinking about these things where you haven't and you've just kind of been on a treadmill. And then when you think about working hard, it's easy to get addicted to that, get addicted to just keep working insane hours and getting these achievements. Um, but I think it's important to stop once in a while, if you can. Uh, as a startup founder, you often cannot where that 10 minute meditation, maybe it should be 30 minutes for a startup founder in the morning and wake up 30 minutes earlier, you know, as long as you're getting your seven hours of sleep. Agreed. All right, personal questions. Most famous person that pops in your mind? Uh, Naval Ravikant. I don't know if he's famous uh, globally, but he's the founder of AngelList and I read his almanac. And um, I really like what he says about building specific knowledge. Um, and he has this tweet storm about how to get rich without getting lucky. And I think there's a, there's a lot of value in that. He's pretty famous, I think. First brand that pops in your mind? 
Nike, just because I have Phil Dog's, uh, Phil Knight's biography, Shoe Dog, um, I have to read. Love it. Uh, book or movie? Book. Superman or Batman? Batman. Fortune cookie or birthday cake? Birthday cake. Five minutes with Bezos or Oprah? Bezos. Mountain or beach? Mountain. Bike or run? Bike. Big Mac or Chick McNuggets? Big Mac. Trophy or money? Money. Beer or wine? Wine. TED Talk or book reading? Book reading. TikTok or Instagram? Instagram. Facebook or LinkedIn? LinkedIn. Favorite movie and what character would you play? You know, I just saw Oppenheimer and I absolutely love that movie. Um, and I would love to play the general. I think that was a cool role. We're going to have to see it. I haven't seen that one yet. You listed a few books, and I'm going to have to get you to text me all your books because okay. I love reading, and you've got a lot of books I haven't read. So favorite book? The one, um, Man's Search for Meaning by far, because it, it helped me a lot, and I was at a point in my life, and I still am to an extent, where I was looking for meaning and purpose, and it really puts things into perspective when you're hearing from someone who was in the concentration camp in the Holocaust. The book I'm reading right now is called Start With Why by Simon Sinek. Um, and I love it as well. And I think uh, it, it clearly outlines how to make decisions when you're building a startup or a company. Um, yeah, and then the classics, you know, Good to Great by Jim Collins. I think it's an amazing book, Zero to One, Peter to You. I love Ben Horowitz's book, Hard Thing About Hard Things. Um, Venture deals is a bit harder to read, but I think it's, it's well worth, especially if you're going to be an investor. Um, Secret of Sand Hills Road, Persuasion and Influence by Robert C. Aldini. If you're selling anything, you have to read those. They're very difficult to read. They're very difficult books to get through, but I think you can understand the concepts. Danny Kahneman, um, Thinking Fast and Slow. Homo Sapiens has kind of been sticking around and I have to read that by uh, Yuval Ferraris. Um, yeah, I'll I'll pause there, but you know, I love reading so tons of books. Yeah. I'll have to get you to share me your list. That would be awesome. Uh, yeah. Favorite sports team? Um, I used to watch cricket, but I've been getting into basketball, and I would say uh, Toronto Raptors. Love it. What is the meaning of success to you? The meaning of success to me is continuous growth, but I don't think it's a meaning of success. I don't think it should be the meaning of success to me. I think the meaning of success should be that I have enough. What is your superpower? Persistence, grit, not, not recognizing the rules that exist in this world when I want to do something. Um, within the, the framework of laws and not doing anything illegal. But if, if someone says, you know, this won't work or you can't do this, then it's game on. I love it. Challenging status quo, but uh, I feel there's a lot of um, observation skills in there really. So I think your analytical skills are uh, on supercharge as well. So I think it really kind of uh, helps put that all together, which obviously allows you to share a lot of great, uh, great insight. So, which is brilliant. Yeah, I want to so, help the world. So I think, I don't know if I have to say that, but you know, I don't want to be an evil dictator, um, but I do want to challenge the status quo. And I think continuous growth is important.
I love it. Well, you're doing a fantastic job. And I want to say thank you very much, so much for joining us today and going through and sharing all this, Rashad. It was awesome. Uh, great insight. I took a lot of notes. And the way we like to end our podcast is we want to give you the last word. So anything that you want to share to the investor community or startup community, we turn it over to you. And please share how people can get in touch with you. And again, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jeffrey. This was a lot of fun. I would just reiterate, this is an amazing time to be an investor. If you already have a startup that's struggling, you know, at times it's okay to say, I don't need to raise another round. If you can go lean and extend your runway, it's a good time. Venture debt is not the worst thing if you have to do it. But at times you have to recognize maybe what you are chasing doesn't exist in this startup. Maybe the product market fit won't happen. So radical honesty with kindness with others, but also with yourself is important. Um, if you want to find me, Rashad Osmani on LinkedIn, Rashad at Health Tech Investors um, are the two best places. I love it. You're the best. Thank you very much for sharing and have an awesome day. Thanks, Jeffrey. So what a great background on Rashad. Just, I love how his structure of life has been like a startup and how he just worked through trial and error to get where he wanted to be and then continue to do that with startup investing and uh, even with his uh, own startup. Uh, and the incredible amount of learning and risk that was associated with all of that. And I loved where he talked about cold calling and, and you know, being able to build a cultural fit and, you know, all the things that he was doing and keeping himself busy, uh, put a family uh, to build a family together at the same time while trying to figure out where he wanted to be and the things he was doing. Uh, very observant. And, and I love the fact that he really built it down on being the loyalty side of building your company and how much that makes a big difference early on when you are growing your company. Uh, amazing um, books that he was able to bring up and the you'll see that, you know, how much reading makes a difference to perspective or how you build something. So please always keep that in mind that uh, everything you read brings one or two things that you may not have thought of, but you'll always remember because it helps build context into as you move forward, how important uh, learning and reading uh, and speaking about it to others is really going to be a, a good understanding. Uh, figuring out pain points, how process can change. And remember, when you're diving into something, you got to make people money or they don't have the same interest. They don't want to just, everybody can't just do things to do well or be good. That can be an outcome. But the number one thing is that they have to generate revenue if they're going to break their process and change things. So thank you for joining us today. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please feel to feel free to share with your friends, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and or please follow us on Spotify, Google, and or Apple. Feel free to share an audio clip or a video clip around our show when we may include it in one of our future podcasts. You can find us on all social platforms, including LinkedIn at Supporters Fund. Your support and comments are truly appreciated. Please visit us at supportersfund.com or startup events at openpeoplenetwork.com. Thank you and have a fantastic day.